I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Ed Humes. Ed is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of more than a dozen nonfiction books, including Mississippi Mud, Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation, and Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, and Burned, A Story of Murder and the Crime That Wasn't. Ed received its Pulitzer for his newspaper coverage of the military and a Penn Award for nonfiction for No Matter How Loud I Shout, A Year in the Life of Juvenile Court. He's taught writing, journalism, and literary nonfiction at graduate and undergraduate levels and has written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Sierra Magazine, and Los Angeles Magazine. His new book is The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. Before we bring him on, though, I must remind you of Patreon and suggest that as we're about to hit our 1,000 show mark, if you've been listening for a while and have gleaned tips that have helped you in your writing in any way, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing any amount helps us to continue doing what we're doing we appreciate every penny and we thank you our loyal listeners and patrons now for ed humes so ed you were on i'm trying to remember what book you came on the show for i don't know if you remember but we talked a long time ago maybe 10 years ago you were on with something and uh, I don't know. I don't, you've been so- That was probably the last time you had a true crime book <laughs> on the show. <laughs> well, you're so prolific. You know, you are just so incredibly prolific and your books tend to be big books. And so I guess, you know, even before we start talking about the forever witness, what what is a, a, a normal writing day like for you? I mean, are you writing like eight hours a day and and just like the most disciplined person in the world? Oh, I would love to say that that was true, <laughs> but uh, it really varies because uh, unlike my uh, friends in the fiction writing world, um, writing narrative nonfiction requires a lot of time researching before I you know, can really competently write about any subject. Um so I'd say once I'm started on a project, there'll be a phase where I'm not doing a lot of writing at all, but I'm interviewing people, I'm hanging out with them, I'm immersing myself in whatever the subject and the location and um, storyline demands so that, um, you know, reality does for me what, what imagination does for, for a fiction writer. Uh, you know, I, I like to think of, of, of the, this kind of writing as having, you know, reality give you the characters and circumstances and conflict that any novelist would die to have thought of. And, you know, and if I start looking at the story that way, then I know I'm onto something. Um, uh, so, but gradually the research bleeds into some writing and then 
then yes, then it's those eight and 10 and sometimes more hours a day uh, where I'm, I'm kind of writing around the clock. And I, I hear from my family that I'm not always the most easy person to live with when the, <laughs> as the as the book really gets fully into that stage. I, you know, I sort of hide out all day and um, if I'm not pacing around or, or something to, to uh, sort of gather my thoughts. I don't know. A lot of writers I know need to be moving a little bit to get uh, get their thoughts flowing sometimes. So I do tend to move around a lot and carry my laptop with me and plop down somewhere uh, in, in a sunny spot, maybe to to continue writing. But yeah, it's it's an even. If so, if it takes me about two years from start to finish, about uh, half of that time will be spent writing, and the other half trying to figure out what I'm writing about. So from start to finish, where you have your idea and you start to do the research onto the writing, onto getting a draft to an agent or an editor? Uh, well, hopefully, uh, um, and get that back and have a finished draft in, in that two-year period. Two That's years. what I shoot so, for. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, this book is so full of... Um, Ah, facts, right? I mean, all the research you did for the Forever Witness, I I can't imagine how you did all of that. In um, do you sleep? Do you actually sleep? <laughs> well, I do, yeah. Um, but sometimes I'm I'm up late uh, uh, because inspiration strikes when it strikes, and um, but and I also tend to be an early riser, uh, which is, is fortunate because I'm the only one in the household who is, other than the dogs. So, <laughs> uh, so, so that helps. I, I have the job of making the coffee, which is the elixir of all writers, at least all that I know. Mm. So, okay, so let's let's go into the book a bit because I'm curious to. It takes place in the Pacific Northwest. The story. And you live there as well as here in Southern California. And I'm curious um, if you lived there when the idea came to you, is that how the idea came to you? Or maybe talk about that too, like when you kind of happened onto this and knew you had to write a book. Uh, yeah, well, I we were living uh, um, full-time in Seattle at that time. And now are mostly in Southern California with frequent visits up there but it was it was the reverse at the time that this mm, story mm. began to unfold in um in 2018 um i mean just to set it up that's yeah uh, it, this case that i i wrote about is really one of the most enduring mysteries of the pacific northwest this brutal murder of a young couple on an overnight trip to seattle happened in 1987 uh, and the crime seemed unsolvable for for more than thirty years. It just you know, generations of detectives and some of the best forensic scientists in the in the country could not crack this case. And then uh, a cold case detective in Snohomish County, Washington, uh, and an amateur genealogist broke that code, and they found this killer with an entirely new way of using DNA. And it, it it launched a kind of a crime fighting revolution. But as the technology advances, the ethics get murky too. And so it was a really interesting story on on many many levels. And just the cast of characters that I I found uh, were living the story from the family of the 
the families of the victims, the victims themselves, the detective, uh, and the sort of mysterious uh, suspect who ended up being identified who was on nobody's radar as uh, a criminal of any kind, all added up to to the kind of story I wanted to wanted to write. And I, I did most of the research and most of the writing there and finished it up here. And here we are. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I rarely read true crime. I I don't know why. I mean, I love, you know, I love the crime genre, but I rarely read it. But when this book um, came in, I think I I turned to the first page and I it just sort of had me from there. And I, you know, today, prior to talking with you, I looked around online for, <laughs> for reviews, some what people are saying about you. And Publishers Weekly, I love the last two lines of their review. They say, Hume's matches taught prose with assured storytelling. This fascinating look at how technology has revolutionized crime solving is a must reading. And I thought, yeah, that's it. That's it exactly. Because the storytelling, I mean, this kind of material could be, could be you know, interesting, but dry. And you are our storyteller. And I am curious about that because I think all of your books have been nonfiction. Is that, is that right? That is true. All of them. Um, so yeah. You, yeah. Talk about that. I'm curious about your storytelling ability. Well, uh, you know, I come, my, my background is uh, professional writing backgrounds from newspapers originally and I you know way back when I took a temporary leave of absence to write one book and I kind of just never went back <laughs> um and and it, I do teach a, a summer immersion course in uh, narrative nonfiction at USC and it's it, it's so funny because uh, it's a graduate program and a lot of my students are working journalists and they have to go through the same painful process I did is realizing that this these these really interesting and important things we put in the newspaper and in other news media really aren't stories at all. They're kind of anti-stories because they, you know, you give away the ending at the beginning and, right. <laughs> and getting um, uh, accomplished journalists to sort of abandon everything they've been taught to do and, and write in a narrative style is, uh, is a, is a painful journey, but a productive one um, once the light bulb goes on. And, it, and I went through that same journey myself with, with my first book, um, I think the kind, the masters of any kind of narrative nonfiction, whether it's crime or, or some other genre, I think about uh, Tracy Kidder or John John McPhee, uh, Joan Didion. Uh, you forget that you're reading nonfiction for long stretches of the of the reading you're caught up in this tale this narrative and it feels like a great novel would feel and that's that's what i strive to 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 do that feeling of of um just being caught up in the story and and, and it being indistinguishable from the experience you have reading reading a good novel um and yeah, this, you, this yeah, story really led itself to that. It just it it's it, uh, it was all there just for me to puzzle out and put together and 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 coax the the stories out of the um, the people involved. And fortunately, they were happy to be coaxed. Um, mm. yeah. That's a great point because I think in reading this, 
you kind of disappeared, you know, I mean, as with fiction, right, the, the writer should disappear. And the story should be what, what the reader is connecting with, not the writer, it's, you know, and, and you do that so well. Um, I, this would be a great time to hear you read from uh, The Fugitive, The Forever Witness. Sure. I don't know why I think Fugitive is in this title. <laughs> was it ever in the title? <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, I was always so. So the conceit of the forever witness is that inside ourselves is a, is a new kind of witness that uh, can't be fooled and uh, never forgets and never lies. And it's the, you know, that makes it the forever witness. And it was just waiting all this time, 30 plus years in this case, to be ferreted out and the truth laid bare. So mm -hmm. that, I, I like that idea and that that is one of the few times when I nailed the title before I wrote the book as opposed mm -hmm. to the other way around. Mm -hmm. So this is from the from the prologue yeah. uh, of the Forever Witness, and a, and the title of the prologue is Litterbug. Okay. A balding mountain of a man, Bill Talbot had reached his fifty fifth birthday with no criminal convictions on his record and no known connection to the victims. Sharf assigned the surveillance detail to shadow Talbot's big rig on his daily deliveries of machine parts around Seattle, then trail him home from work, looking for anything suspicious. But other than bouts of fist shaking and shouting at other drivers, the man was a cipher. He worked, then went home, and did little else. The man's reclusiveness also made it hard for the surveillance officers to accomplish Sharf's other directive grab something with Talbot's DNA on it without tipping him off. But there was a problem. The man never left anything behind. He was obsessive about it. And so a week of waiting and frustration went by before the break finally came where they least expected it on a busy highway in the middle of traffic. Talbot stopped his truck at a red light, then abruptly flung open his door and climbed onto the running board. His surprised watchers quickly slumped in their car seats, but he wasn't looking their way. His broad face florid, brows knit. Talbot leaned his bulk between cab and trailer and wrestled with something, maybe a loose cable, that had been rattling and annoying him. When the light turned green, he hastily clambered back behind the wheel, and that's when it happened. A used paper coffee cup tumbled out of the cab and fell to the street below. Talbot didn't notice it, or if he did, he ignored it and let the cop left the cop where it lay to be flattened by a hundred passing cars and trucks. He slammed his big rig into gear and roared off. The closest undercover cop had seen it all. Leaping from his watch car and dodging traffic, the officer snatched the cup and hoisted his paper trophy high. I'll drive it to the crime lab myself. Scharf told the surveillance officer when they met that afternoon at the cold case office. Ten minutes later, their paperwork signed. He was in his car and headed to the Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory Division, the stained white cup in its plastic evidence bag on the seat beside him. The crime lab people loved coffee cups, Scharf knew. Saliva was a rich source of DNA, and drinking always left plenty behind. Every day... We all unthinkingly throw away a plethora of objects containing our entire genome, our most private information, 
the roadmap to who and what we are. Through accident or design, Scharf didn't know which, Talbot somehow avoided doing so while, on, while under constant surveillance. But finally, that cup slipped through. Give me 24 hours, Scharf's favorite lab tech told him, and I'll have an answer for you. The detective returned to his office with its piles of papers and yellowing photos of cold case victims, feeling anxious and steeling himself against hoping too much. He had lost count of the other suspects in this case he had sought out, checked out, and ultimately ruled out because their DNA didn't match traces left behind by the killer. Maybe this time would be different. Tomorrow he would know. He would know the truth about Bill Talbot. He would know if he was on the verge of a big arrest and something quite possibly historic, the first ever genetic genealogy murder trial. And he'd know if the slaying of the young Canadians, Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook, could be solved through a family tree, a paper cup, and the heedless act of a litter bug. Scharf flipped through a folder, its graying manila cover worn thin and soft as old leather. His case file held only one picture of Jay and Tanya together. It wasn't posed, just a hasty snapshot. Jay stood gazing down in concentration at some small object in his hands, maybe something he was trying to unknot, dark brown hair flowing over his eyes. Tanya was seated and had just glanced up as the shutter clicked, so she appeared to look directly into Sharp's eyes. Her slightly freckled face looked relaxed, Sharp thought, carefree. He guessed it had been taken just a month or two before they died. Tanya had turned 18 that spring, Jay was a month shy of 21. They'd be pushing 50 by now, he thought, had they lived. After a long moment, Scharf closed the folder and waited. Mm, thank you so much, Ed. Sure. That was Ed Humes reading from The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. So was this always the beginning? Was this prologue always the beginning? Or did you write the book and then come up with the prologue? I would have to confess that in the majority of my books, the uh, beginning, the first beginning I have has almost never been the uh, beginning I end up with. Um, because I'm a, I'm a strong believer that in writing, you, you have to get started. And um, but I often revisit that start and move it to some other location in the book. Um, one of the things that I was really captivated about and that I thought about beginning the book with was a different idea. And, and that's the fact that this process of genetic genealogy, and we haven't really talked about what that is, but basically it's, it's, um, it's putting the power of these home DNA ancestry tests that uh, millions of Americans have taken and you can buy online relatively inexpensive. I mean, people use them as stocking stuffers you know, and, uh, for holiday gifts. And uh, But what it is, uh, is a tool for understanding your roots, for finding uh, members of your family that you... Um, didn't know existed and and because dna is a very powerful tool for doing that these databases the more they grow the more customers who um, buy these tests and, and upload their data into the system the more powerful 
it, uh, this process called genetic genealogy becomes. Um, you could basically find any anyone, any uh, in the you know in the nation or beyond through this process. And what came to pass is that without knowing it, um, people who were participating in this process were also crowdsourcing homicide investigations. <laughs> and who knew you weren't just finding great grandma, you were finding a killer who had been sought for 30 years without knowing it. Uh, until one day you get a knock on the door and there's two detectives standing on your, uh, the landing uh, with badges on their belts and the uh, and they say, we're here uh, because we're investigating a homicide we believe was committed by someone you're related to. And, and this is this is what actually happened in this case and in many others like it since. Uh, and, you know, the person answering door says, what are you talking about? And he says, well, you know, not only do we think he's related to you, but we found them because of your DNA. And what a holy cow moment that is, because nobody sees this coming until it happens. And I thought, hmm, maybe I could begin this story that way. Uh, and I ended up use, using that idea elsewhere in the book because I realized I wanted to introduce the character of Detective Scharf at the beginning. Um, and then uh, used him as your as the reader's guide to to explain this uh, crime that happened in 1987 and to go back in time when he was just a patrol deputy in Snohomish County and then moved the story forward from, from that point. And that seemed like a, a more effective beginning than this, than the sort of reader's point of view, I, I imagine with, with that moment when you get that not unexpected knock on your door. I like that you, you said that, that you just, you just keep going because I think that, hangs up many, especially new writers, you know, trying to get the beginning right and working so hard on the beginning, you know, sometimes for years, right? Before before moving on. And and ultimately that beginning is probably going to change by the time you get to the end of the book and back to revision, back, you know, to the second draft. Um it's true, and 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 knowing that actually takes the pressure off uh, a little bit. I like to get that that prologue is sort of sets me in motion, and um, and the, the the whole first section of the book basically takes place in the in the nineteen eighties when the crime occurred, and um, the uh, investigation, the primary initial investigation, was at its height. So. Uh, and I love writing. I mean, I love any story that takes place in multiple time frames. And um, yeah, nineteen eighty-seven was uh, it was so different from today uh, in terms of how you would investigate uh, a, a crime in which a young couple goes on this long drive from their home in Vancouver Island, Canada, bound for Seattle, and somewhere along the two ferry trips and and long drive through the rainforest of the Olympic Peninsula, they vanish. This is an age before cell phones, before traffic cams, before all the things that we take for granted uh, that, that allows us to stay constantly in touch and to be constantly tracked uh, didn't exist. And, and so that it, it was interesting to evoke that era 
uh, particularly with a story that has such privacy implications about how DNA is used. So, so I, so I, I knew where I needed to begin the, the meat of the story that set in the, that past era. Um, and it wasn't too important for me to nail the prologue right away. I knew I could mm -hmm. come back to that and figure out, um, what, what was the right way to, to set things, set the table, so to speak, for that story that begins in 1987. So when you're doing research, when you were doing research for this book, did you, did you spend a lot of time in that area? Did you drive that, that road from, I guess, from Canada down to uh, Seattle, down to the ferry, um, through the woods, through that rainforest? Did you, do you immerse yourself in that way um, with this yeah, book I or took, in general? Yeah, in your project. In general, sure. I mean, how can you write about a, a scene, a setting, uh, a place, unless you spend time there. So, um, yeah, I visited their uh, home and where they hang out, hung out in nineteen in the nineteen eighties on Vancouver Island, which is part of British Columbia. It's really spectacularly wonderful, beautiful place. And, um, um, sort of got the members of the family to to show me around. The, uh, and point out the places that were meaningful to Tanya and Jay, and, and then to make that ferry trip and that drive around in the peninsula and explore the area in Seattle where they were supposed, where they were bound. Um, but as far as we know, never actually made it there. Mm -hmm. The areas where the, the bodies were found, 60 miles apart, was one of the mystifying aspects of the case that they were found in different counties the the van they were traveling in was found in a third location and then their personal possessions and id cards were found in a fourth location and the method of of murder was radically different between the two of them but there were certain things that bound together the the crime scenes um, that were found at each one that's linked them together in uh, for the investigators. Um, so visiting each of those places, um, interviewing the people who were involved in the investigation in 1987 and, and what, having them walk me through the process of what they did and what they saw. Um, you know, after 30 years, it's... Uh, it's not always easy, but they had, you know, their, their place reports were sort of their memory aids. And then they would remember the little details that you don't put in the, the police reports. And, and they, I, I felt I was able to really bring the readers along into those moments and into those places that way. And fortunately, that part of the world, particularly the wild areas, haven't changed a lot in, uh, in, in the time that has passed since these crimes took place. And, uh, and that helped to aid me in giving a realistic depiction of these this incredibly beautiful and forbidding area that they were traveling through when they disappeared. How much interviewing did you have to do? I mean, how how many hours might you have spent um, talking to family members, talking to you know? the police up there, uh, other investigators. I mean, how much time does that 
Oh, well, <laughs> well, the principal investigator on the case, Detective uh, Jim Shore, the cold case detective in the book, I I can't even count the number of hours I, I spent with him. Um, spent a lot of time talking to Tanya and Tanya's best friend, who also knew Jay very well, and visiting with the family and staying in touch with them. And, and things would come up that I'd have to ask them about. And Tanya's brother shared with me... Uh, a, a poem that Tanya wrote. She was kind of a, a budding poet, a photographer, a very creative person and at, eight, at 18. And the, there was the line of poetry quoted on her her uh, memorial at her, at her grave. And I visited there and I had asked, where did that poetry, that po line of poem come from? And it, the line was, she parts her wings and then she's gone. And it was a picture of a dove there and it was very resonant to me res resonated with me and she said, well that was tanya's poem so he gave me in her handwriting her the entire poem and and uh i said i'd like to reprint it as a you know in in the book not in typeface but in her handwriting and mm -hmm. and he said that that would be fine so i did mm -hmm. that's on the very last page before the epilogue mm -hmm. that her poem is represented there and and so that there was a lot of moments like that uh, moments of discovery and 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 sharing with the you know people who lived with this incalculable loss for all those years and and would have their hopes raised and then crushed again when it seemed like there was a break in the case and then it would pan out um, tanya's dad passed away way before the uh, case was solved, uh, but he and Jay's dad uh, did a very long videotaped interview that I found um, with a talk show on a local talk show called um, Northwest Afternoon, and they had done a segment in um, in conjunction with the the, the syndicated TV show Unsolved Mysteries, which did an episode on mm. on Jay and Tanya's case. Um, but that was much less interesting to me than this interview of the two dads together talking about their children and what, what the family had gone through. And it, it was so intimate and so telling about uh, what both of these, these gentlemen were about. And, and this was only two years after the, after the murders and it was still so raw and difficult for them and and the guests were i mean the hosts were kind but you know the, when the kinds of questions that happen in a show like that are like a knife in the gut to, mm -hmm. to, to people who are trying to cope with with their grief uh, but it was i must have watched that 30 times but you know i had a chance to interview gordon cook jay's dad but not um bill van kylenberg who had passed away 10 years after tanya um, but the, that sort of material is, is a treasure to someone who's trying to, to write a story and, and he, the, the things he recounted and the moments that he experienced that he talked about was extraordinary. And I, 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 I was glad that I could find this. Uh, this material that would enable me to do, do a 
really well-rounded portrait of of a man who searched heroically for for his his daughter who wouldn't give up even though the police were initially thought oh it's just two young people off you know a romantic getaway it happens all the time um they'll they'll get back in touch and and you know, he knew that wasn't, he yeah. knew his daughter. She always, you know, even though it was the pre-cell phone era, she always called to check in, always said, I'm safe or I'm running late. And when she didn't do that, he began his search. And uh, unfortunately it ended tragically for him and his family. But uh, I, I was, thanks to that interview and and his the rest of his family, I was able to give a, a three-dimensional portrait of of this this father whose whose story you know would resonate with any any parent or anyone really mm -hmm. well okay so then after all that research um i would imagine you wrote many more pages than made it in the book <laughs> uh, <laughs> Is that that, that's not unusual <laughs> yeah i so it's interesting. One of the things I love about uh, nonfiction, kind of true crime, uh, is, is sort of the search for humanity in the face of inhumanity. And and sometimes part of that story is uh, uh, it brings you into the world of, of of science and the law. Actually, that's two different worlds, and they don't often get all <laughs> do so well together. You know, there's an uneasy. Uh, combination but they're both fascinating in their way and they're both windows into um into the humanity of those stories but you have to explain it you know it's the science of genetic genealogy and sometimes it it's it, it, it's easy to get into the into the weeds so to speak explaining the um this background to the to the human stories that you're trying to tell and then I have to rein myself in, or my editor says, you know, you know, my eyes are glazing over this. Do we really need to know all this about DNA? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and of course, he was right. So it, that's that's what the revision process is for, and the editing process, and and that's why we all need editors, no matter no matter who we are. Um, it's my uh, motto: everyone needs an editor, uh, and. And that's okay. I don't mind that. Sometimes um, if the material is really kind of really interesting, but is interrupting the uh, the narrative flow, I, I I like to do and <laughs> I like to do endnotes uh, at the back of the book that, mm -hmm. by by chapter. So there's no footnotes in the actually, you know, it's not a scientific paper or anything. But if you're interested in sort of drilling down into any of these sub subjects as a reader you can flip back and look at the, the chapter notes and find out oh how do, you know who figured out how to do this uh this process of dna fingerprinting that we've been using all these decades and how is it different from genetic genealogy what's the difference between the two dna tools and, and i give a nod to that in this main narrative and then you can Dig dig around a little bit more in the um, in the end notes if you want to know more. Uh, I I don't go too overboard with that, but I think that's the newspaper reporter mm -hmm. part of me that we're oh you'd have a really interesting story, and then you'd have a little explainer. We call it a sidebar for a short story that sort of drills down into some of that detail and stuff. So I still like to have, replicate that 
uh, sort of extra bit of information in in my books. I'm curious what drew you to uh, nonfiction. Were you ever like a fiction writer or did you always know this was it, right? I mean, that you were going to be a journalist and these were going to, you were eventually going to write books, narrative nonfiction books, maybe true crime, maybe, you know, you have some differing um, subjects you cover as real I variety yeah. of things. Um, but yeah, what, what, you know, what drew you to narrative? Well, it was, it was journalism that was the draw. And I, I started working part-time for newspapers when I was still in college. And this idea of, of <laughs> uh, finding out something that nobody else knows and, and getting to tell the world in a news story, even if that world was just like, you know, the town of Amherst, Massachusetts for a 6,000 circulation newspaper. And I was writing about the city council meeting that they had me covered. Uh, it was still, mm -hmm. uh, it, I just, I feel like the, that process and the, and the vital role journalism fills in whatever form it is, whether it's in print or online or over the airwaves uh, or streaming is, is just so vital uh, to to democracy, to understanding the world around us, and I I love that work. I did. I was in newspapers for more than ten years, um, and this, to me, this is an extension of that. It's uh, as as I matured as a journalist and and um, moved to larger newspapers and and bigger stories, I guess you'd say. Uh, I was looking for new ways of, of telling those stories. And, uh, you know, I've done some magazine writing too, but I, I really like the idea of, of, um, of a book length treatment of the kinds of, of stories I was uh, uh, going after as a newspaper report, but now with the resources, the time to research, the ability to build character and setting instead of just the, the sort of more basic kinds of uh, writing you do for daily news and daily journalism. Uh, so that that was really the the impetus for me. I, I wanted to give that a try, and, and the opportunity came to do a crime book. Um, a substantial part, although not the entire part of my newspaper career was covering the just justice system and and particularly criminal justice. So I was really comfortable with that. I thought, okay, I can I can do this. And then there was that painful relearning of how to tell a story properly, you know, <laughs> with uh, without uh, revealing the ending and the uh at the beginning you know you know a classic news story is like someone who can't doesn't know how to tell a joke where you tell the punchline first i mean that's that's basically <laughs> what we do in, in in news writing so i had to unlearn that and and learn how to interview people for narrative rather than for a news story and that was a, a bit of a learning curve but i really got hooked on on that kind of writing and having that length of time to really uh, know enough to to get back to what we were first talking about create a narrative where where um, a reader can forget that they're reading nonfiction and just feel like they've been sucked into the kind of world that uh, a good novel 
can bring them into. So I, I love it. And I, but I don't want to give up the journalism part of that where you just sort of, you know, just going with imagination and creativity alone to, to create the, this experience for readers. In this case, there is creativity and there is an imagination, but the basic source material is, is reality is real events and real people. I, I like that challenge and that, that process. I never yeah. get tired of it. <laughs> this is my 16th book. I must like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a few minutes left and I wanted to ask you, you know, for someone starting out um, in the true crime genre, um, what, what do you, what would you suggest in terms of you know, finding their way in, you know, I mean, you have the books and experience that, you know, gain you entree into probably anywhere, right? Because, you know, you can, you have all that. And what about someone who doesn't? I mean, what would you suggest? A couple things. And I'll use my, um, sort of process with with the forever witness as an example the first thing that um, attracted me was this sort of journalism appeal Ooh, genetic genealogy a new way of solving cold cases but there's privacy concerns because you're using people's dna in a way they had no idea it would be used um and oh this particular case in particular it's going to be the first genetic genealogy trial in history it's it's you know it's uh uh, so it has that timeliness aspect and all that is great, but that doesn't make it a book. That just makes it an interesting magazine story, maybe or a news story. The next question you have to ask yourself is, are there, are, are there characters that I can have access to and settings? And is there, what's the humanity uh, portion of this story that you that's caught your interest um, and can you create characters with empathy and that that would be empathy on the part of the writer and also you know on the part of the reader you know this is you go from if you're a journalist and you want to write a book you, you're moving from the world of of um, journalistic rules and sort of keeping arm's length from your subjects and now you're entering uh, uh the realm of journalism with a heart you need to you need to really feel uh, uh the story that you were um writing in, in ways that you were discouraged uh to do with in conventional journalism it doesn't mean that you're you're taking necessarily taking sides or sympathetic empathy is different than sympathy um, but you you do have to really use the human power of empathy to get inside the the lives of the, the people that you're writing about regardless of what role they're playing in the story and if you if you find that you can do that with once you figure out what it is that you want to write about and you you get to know a little bit about the characters and events involved then then you're then you're halfway there um the for this kind of writing it all begins with with the the depth and quality of your 
your research and access. Um, and, you know, the best writer in the world cannot write good narrative nonfiction if they don't have the material to work with. Um, but if you have the material, uh, you you can do wonders with it. Um, yeah. So empathy, research first, and then uh, if you if, if you find that you have those ingredients, then full speed ahead. See if you can do hmm. write the story that uh, pulls your readers into the that world that has been interesting enough and compelling enough to you to pull you in. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does make sense. It does make sense. Um, you know, and I'm also curious. Have you done a home DNA test? <laughs> I uh, um, have, have not uh, gone that route. Uh, though I'm, <laughs> I'm curious. I uh, I'm not ready to try that. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting Pandora's box. I mean, yeah. I, it's, it's funny for me to say that. You know, as a um, journalist, I always, you know, on principle, I say it's better to know than not to know. Right? Um, it's. Uh, I am I'm concerned about sort of getting that kind of information out into the world. I mean, it's not like getting a credit card stolen. You know, you can always get a new credit card. You know, once your once your genetic code is hacked, you're kind of that's it. You don't get a new one. Uh, but there's I also watched a lot of people find out things uh, from taking these tests uh, beyond you know, finding out that you're distantly related to some criminal suspect. Most people actually who had unknowingly helped out an investigation feel good. You know, I don't even know who this person, I'm, you know, is my fourth cousin is, uh, but if they're a killer, I want them caught. <laughs> um, but a lot of people find out that their family histories as they had been explained to them in, across generations uh, have some holes in them or aren't true or the people you think you're related to mm-hmm. aren't the people who you were actually related to so this uh it's it's not all peaches and cream when you take one of these tests you have to be prepared for things that you don't expect and yeah and is uh, my my feeling is if just have your eyes wide open if you're going to do this kind of DNA testing and understand that um, there's a lot of secrets uh, out there that have been kept a long time that these tests reveal. You know, people who are adopted can find their birth parents, even though that is a process shrouded in in uh, confidentiality. The same with donor. You know, egg and sperm donor babies they have found their biological donors who are anonymous on you know uh, legally so um those connections often end up being a source of of uh, you know a positive thing for many people but it's, it's kind of sobering thinking that such secret proceedings as adoptions and um uh, uh, reproductive donor, donors are, are exposed by this technology as this kind of unintended consequence of uh, of our fascination with our roots and exploring them with new new uh, technology. So, hmm. yeah. So no, <laughs> it's a long <laughs> way of saying no. <laughs> Heck no. <laughs> C.C. Moore, the uh, genetic genealogist who um, 
cracked this case and hundreds of others. She's like solved more cold cases than than uh, anyone on the planet at this point. She did her early on before she was solving crimes. She did um, uh, genealogy for her brother-in-law, uh, whose family had always said, "Oh, you know, we're from this and that background, but we also have Native American um, heritage." So. Um, CC found, oh, no, you don't actually have uh, Native American heritage. You have um, African American heritage that, you know, his family had suppressed that. Um, mm. And not only that, but he was directly related to a descendant of Sally Hemings. Wow. Um, the enslaved person who bore Thomas Jefferson's yeah. president's uh, children. So that was a shock to him although ultimately he was he did a pilgrimage to monticello and kind of tried and learned about his the his heritage and the history the history of the hendings family mm. because of this mm -hmm. um so it shows you the kind of the, the real-time truths that are exposed by by these uh DNA tests that uh, nobody sees coming until the information staring up at them from the, <laughs> from the page and from an expert like C.C. Moore interpreting what's on that page. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I thought that I thought that was a really cool uh, really thing. Cool. Uh, and yeah. but yeah, you can see why it's so powerful in finding uh, killers. Uh, even though the killer's DNA isn't in anyone's system, is by tracing people through their familial ties. That's the real power of these databases. You could find anyone, uh, and and that's why there's been this explosion of of seemingly unsolvable cold cases getting solved after all these years. It's been mm -hmm. it happens like at least once a week. Yeah. Well, Ed, I I love this book and. Um... I know you're on book tour and I, I just wish you the best with it. It's just, you know, it's just great. And, uh, and especially anyone who hasn't ever read true crime and this is the place to uh, dip your toes in. It's just really a wonderful book. Thank you for writing it. Oh, well, thank you, Barbara. It's so nice. I mean, I feel like I'm in such good company among the, uh, the authors you have, uh on your podcast here. So uh, I feel very privileged and really appreciate the, the thoughtful conversation we're, we've been having. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks again to our Patreon supporters. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music design and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone can be reached at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Mm -hmm.